This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Have we been telling stories that we really haven't even thought about? But we use these phrases like, I'm not very good at that. Yeah, I don't do that. I'm not a math person. We might quickly dismiss something we do by saying, ah, it's just the way I am. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not, I don't like to hold the grandbabies. I, I, I want them, I'm a, I'm a grandpa that'll play with them when they're older. Well, let go of that story and pick up your grandbaby. <laughs> Get rid of the story. You don't have to be pegged by something you thought you were 30 years ago. It's not like somebody's going to say, Grandpa, do this math. So you you don't have to be bad at math anymore. You've got a brain. You can still add. Anyway, it's simple to just sit there and have a trite phrase that we use all of the time. But many of these phrases, they're not going to help you. They beat you up. They They actually take away something. They could take away something like time with your kids or your grandkids. Yeah, I don't have time for that. Yeah, hobbies, you know, I don't golf because it's a waste of time. Now, you don't have to go golf, but that's also a story because it could be really time well spent. Exercising, hanging out with friends, opening your mind up, meditating, wrapping your golf club around a tree, stuff like that. Another thing we need to let go of is the need to keep score. Let's just get very clear, folks. Life isn't fair. So if it's not fair, then there's probably no value in keeping score. (laughs) People are going to step on you. They're going to make mistakes. Someone's going to pull in front of you, and it is going to slow you down ten hundredths of a second. Yeah, it happens. Doesn't mean you need to chase them down and pull in front of them. The reason why it's not useful to keep score is because much of life is intangible anyway. The greatest benefits in life are intangible. They're not even... You can't mark it. You can't compare it. The joy you feel being with a grandchild, the joy you feel watching your child have a home run or hit a home run in a game, man, that's incredible. And why are we keeping score? It's not fair. At some point, people are going to step on your toes. They're going to do stupid stuff. This isn't a race. This is called life. So if you feel a need to keep score constantly, then guess what? You're going to pay for it. There's going to be problems for you. Another thing we need to let go of are what I call the overs and the unders. Every one of us tends to take extremes in our lives. We either go overboard or under, right? So we play way too hard and excessive in what we do. We play to kill for keeps. We play to dominate. And some of us just don't play. Think about your life. Where are you overboard? Well, I I collect figurines. I have 12,000 of them. Okay, it's a little over. Maybe you're a little overboard on that. Uh, You don't have to be a fanatic to believe in God. You don't have to go overboard or under. Yeah, I don't even go to church. You can actually go to church and just be there. Be there your way. 
yeah, but then they'll ask me to pray, and now i got to pray. And Well, you could say no. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Overs and unders, we all do it. And it, sometimes it's over, you know, we're overconfident, uh, and some of us are really underconfident. We lack the confidence we need. Are there certain things that take you to an extreme? Are you doing any activity excessively? Do you, do you overschedule your life? Do you overcommit to everything? Are you overly exhausted? Or do you, you know, have plenty of energy because you don't ever say yes to anything and you don't ever step out of your comfort zone? We might want to look at that and let go of it. You might want to let go of what's not working. Sometimes in life there's just time to let go of stuff that just isn't working. It's it's how many times do you keep trying to do something over and over and it's just not working? We keep trying it. That could I mean I see it a lot with my clients where they just keep trying and trying and trying to do to have a conversation even though it's not working. Well, what are we supposed to do just not talk? Well, no, but go learn how to make it work. Find another way to do this. There are different ways to try stuff. And with today's technology and today's day and age, if if the way you keep trying to lose weight isn't working and it hasn't for 30 years, maybe you got to let go of that way of losing weight. Maybe it's not about watching your calories. Maybe it's not. Maybe there's another way to skin the cat. I don't know why we're skinning cats, but... Seems gotta, a little cruel to me. Yeah, to you don't skin, have to skin a skin cat, cat to lose weight. You don't. But find another way to do it. Just go find something you're passionate about. Well, I really love racquetball, but I, it doesn't help me with my calories. Well, okay. There's, but then go do more racquetball. You know, I don't know. Just we've got to find a different way of doing things that, especially after years of something not working. Another thing we might want to do is get rid of our need to accumulate stuff. Oh, it's just stuff we keep. I kept, and I have no idea why I did it, I kept every script basically for our radio show, every article I read, we we accumulate about 20, 30 pages of information that we use for this show every day. And I would just staple them all together and put them in a file. I threw them out. Actually, I had I had Kaylee throw them out. She broke her. She about, darn near broke her back trying to lift this, lift these papers. It's crazy. We accumulate stuff like it matters, but then when you look at people like Gandhi, you know, Buddha, Christ, these people were known for what they didn't have. They didn't try to get their identity from their stuff. Maybe we could just throw more stuff out, you know, recycle more, get rid of stuff, declutter. So I challenge you as springs are coming, let's declutter. Get in there and seriously, get rid of a third of your stuff. Well, but I might need it. Have you needed it the last 10 years? Well, no, but I might retire in 10 more years and then I might need it. Believe me, by the time you retire in 10 years, you won't need it. You'll have an iPhone that does everything for you. Another thing we might let go of is just one bad habit. Think of one bad habit. You might have 50. Ben has 250. And growing. (laughs) And growing. Just get rid of one bad habit. Just one thing. What's one thing you can just figure out how to stop doing today? 
one thing. Let's just get it off our plate. Oh, one bad habit. Ben, what's your bad habit you're going to get rid of? Caring too much. No, brother. Caring too much? When did that start? That's my defect. That's my only defect. My only weakness. Yeah. Okay, never mind. Don't even worry about it. Never mind. Knew I shouldn't have asked him. Just one bad habit. What's your what's your worst habit? I care too much. So I'm gonna let it go and turn into a horrible evil person. That's one of the great lines. What's your worst um what would you say is your worst habit, uh, as we're about to hire you for this job? My worst habit is I, I try too hard, I work endlessly. You're amazing. I know. You ought to hire me. Anyway, let go of just one bad habit. So there you have it, folks. A few ideas for you. Things we can let go of. Project elimination. Let go of stories that don't serve us. Let go of the need to keep score. Let go of the overs and the unders, the extremes that we take. Let go of what is not working. Let go of the need to accumulate stuff. And let go of one bad habit. Even if that habit is you care too much. That's the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. We'll be back. More tools, more ideas to help you live longer, love stronger. Stick with us, folks. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, Valentine's Day is just around the corner. Uh, Ben's been marking it off for about a year, which is exciting. Yeah, like 360 days. <laughs> Five days you forgot about it because you were in love. Well, we still have three more days, so it was two, two days Two days love. of like the after effect. Oh, that was so close, though. She almost was a keeper. Well, yeah, you actually almost were the keeper. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Uh, to be technical. Took me two days to get over it, and then now I'm after that. I was back on the horse. I feel so bad for you. That's why we brought Nate in today for you, Ben, because Nate Bagley's here. He is our guest. He's going to talk to us about love and how to find it, how to avoid settling for mediocre love. Ben, uh, Nate Bagley left a successful career in internet marketing to tour the U.S. interviewing real couples in happy, successful relationships. And he has documented these experiences in what he calls the Love Humanity. If you go to the website lovehumanity.com, you can watch all of the videos. There's what are you up to like eighty videos or something? Yeah, it's all audio, so um, it's a bunch of podcast episodes. We're approaching a hundred. Really See, stoked about it. And then you just sit down, Nate Bagley. Welcome to the show. Thanks. It's you, great, great to be here. Then you just sit down with these couples and pick their brains on what. It's the key to success. Exactly. So the the whole story behind this is. I was getting a lot of pressure to get married, yeah. you know, getting older. Right. My younger brothers were starting to get married, and everybody's like, Nate, what's going on? Why aren't you getting Come married Come on, yet? man. Are you, what's wrong with you? Are you sick? Right. <laughs> and it's, if you look at the landscape of love, you know, you've got the, on average, 50% of couples get divorced. And then yeah. I looked at the couples who were staying together. They didn't and, seem so happy. Yeah. And I'm like, well, how? Right. That's not, we're not doing a great job at selling love or marketing love. Yeah. 
So I was like, when I get married, I don't want to have a mediocre relationship. I, and this project has actually led me to declare war on mediocre love. Good, great. I think mediocre love is just horrible. Yeah. Too many people settle. And I, I decided I wanted to have an amazing relationship. And the best way to do that would be to go track down the couples who had ridiculously awesome relationships and figure out what they're doing differently than That's everybody cool. else. And then – so but you quit your job to do this. Yeah, I'm a crazy person. But I guess too that got everyone off your back because it's not like you're not trying. Right. <laughs> you're yeah. studying it. Yeah. I mean really you've made it a – you've made it a science. You, you've have, you have a TED Talk out there as well, uh-huh. Fight Naked and other epic love strategies. But – what what do you first of all? I guess how do you know who's got the best relationship? Because um, it seems like a lot of people could fake it. Yeah, a lot of people could fake it. I think if you're willing to sit down with me for like two hours and talk about the most intimate relationship in your life, you've probably got some sort of Something's confidence that you've got something right. there. And I, I find almost all these couples based off of referral. Mm-hmm. So I would sit down and say, you know, Matt, yeah. who are the people that you admire most? Who, oh, which relationships do you love the most? And tell me a little bit about them. And when I get a bit of a flavor for a couple of those couples, I'll ask for an introduction to one or two. And um, I just kind of go based off of that. And if there's one thing – well, I've learned a lot of things over the last several years. But one of them is that there are as many recipes to yeah. true love as there are couples who have it. No, right. Exactly. So just because – I've interviewed some couples and I'm like, oh, I don't know if that's for me, but if that's works for them, I can mm-hmm. totally see how that. Well, and it's applies. last night I spoke to, I don't know how many there were, a hundred um, parents, pe- people, couples, well, 50 couples, a hundred parents of families that had lost children. Mm. They, their children had died. And it was, so I sit there and I think of a mediocre love. And it's one thing to like have incredible love and an incredible connection. And then it seems like it's another thing to then be able to take that love and make it through an event like that. Mm-hmm. And some people may go into it without with a mediocre love. And do you, do you sense that you can then turn it? Can you turn the love around? Yeah, I think I think you could. Like these the couples almost have human, to, right? Yeah, you, you, those times of trial are – they're the test that – that proves whether you're going to turn towards each other in a time of conflict or turn away from each other. Yeah. And every amazing couple that I've interviewed has has been through a time of difficulty, whether it's severe illness, losing a child, yeah. bankruptcy, you know, losing a job, losing a parent. They um, all have an event. Yeah, they have a time of struggle. And all of those couples chose to turn towards each other and work together as a team to overcome hmm. the obstacle rather than turning away from each other and blaming each other. Yeah, that's huge. Huh? Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, you, you hear that a lot in, from relationship experts, mm-hmm. but it was really cool to see how those things happened. I remember um, I talked to one couple, Reed and Aline Whitesides. They had been married for over 70 years. They got married in their teens and yeah. I interviewed them in their 90s. Oh, great. And they they had gone bankrupt twice in their <laughs> relationship. And at one point they said they, they and their kids ended up buying boxes of silverware and selling silverware door to door to keep – To just keep up. Keep, to keep afloat. But, you know, they could have got mad at each other and said, this is your fault. No, this is your yeah, fault. You know, your business you, failed. Right. Uh, why weren't you mani- the, managing the finances better? But instead they're like, hey, well, what can we do? And they found a way to scrape by and dug their way out of the hole and, and made it out. And that was just a great testament to oh, me yeah. that, you know, if you can work together as a team, you, you can come out successful. Right. No, yeah. I love that. And, and, and this is interesting because you're doing this as a single guy. Yeah. Do you – I mean, do you ever worry that you're setting your expectations so high or how do you – because you don't want mediocrity. No, I don't. But but maybe it's something too you just – you have to create. I don't know. It's definitely Because you're not going to just create. go find the person necessarily. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you know, 
uh, if I could use an analogy, yeah. um, I like to use the analogy of baseball. So a lot of people play Little League Baseball growing up. Probably most kids play at least one season. Right. And then, yeah. Yeah, you play T-ball or or Little League Baseball. And then when you get into high school, only a small group of those people go on to play high school ball. And then a small group of people who play high school go on to play college ball and so on and so on, all the Uh, way up to the World Series. A fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the percent of people who ever played baseball get to play in the World Series. I'm a weird person or unique, I guess, in that I'm training for the World Series of Love. Right. And I don't want to play the game with somebody who's stuck in Little League or at the high school level. So it is difficult. But what I'm looking for is somebody who wants to train at that level and not somebody who's already playing at that level. Mm -hmm. So That's cool. Yeah, I think my expectations are high, but they're also realistic. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And part of it, I think, is just – Getting somebody, too, that's like-minded, that's that serious and intentional about having a love yeah. that's powerful. And I, and I won't claim to be a master yeah, of all this stuff. Yeah, you don't have to be, right? You'll you know? learn it. And, and it's, theory is much easier than practice. Right. So I'll be the first to admit that I've interviewed all these couples and have learned a lot, but putting it in practice is something that I still struggle with. Yeah. And I'm very aware of my own weaknesses and, I'm, and what we just talked about. You know, all these, I've interviewed all these couples and they've all gone through really difficult times, so I'm not – ignorant to the fact that mm-hmm. my relationships are going to go through hard times yeah. too and that, yeah. that I'm imperfect. And Well, it's kind of like I always talk about like Everest. You can interview everybody coming down Everest, uh-huh. but I mean on the way up Everest, they can say, you know, it's going to be really hard. Yeah. And on the way down Everest, they're going to say, you know, it was really hard. But the guys coming down Everest know what hard is. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, but in the end, you just got to climb Everest. Yep. And and you'll know when you get up there, right? You'll 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 be up there, and all of a sudden, then you'll have all this wisdom coming yep. back to you. The neat thing about what you're doing is that you're trying to find the wisdom now. Trying, yeah. Is it interesting? Is it are the singles who who do you sense are your audience? Uh, a lot of singles and a lot of young couples. Uh, yeah. But I think there's a lot of a lot of singles out there who are hungry for love. Totally. And we're going through, I think, this cultural shift. I'm ho- I'm hoping this is yeah. a cultural shift that's happening, where we're realizing that 21st century love doesn't just occur naturally as mm-hmm. in human beings. Yeah. It's a skill. It's a skill that's acquired over time with when you do the right work, when you study the right principles, when you have the right mentors. You know, love becomes much easier, but not until you develop those skills. Do you actually have the ability to have this type of dynamic love that everybody dreams about? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In fact, we always like – I always think of like Romeo and Juliet that was just so natural, chemical love. And so and so emotional and then they committed suicide. <laughs> exactly. And they didn't have the skills to negotiate family issues and right? – right? So then death became seemingly romantic but really a, just a cop-out. For a lack of skills, exactly, and I think that's brilliant. You yeah. need you need the skills. Let's take a break, Nate. We're talking with Nate Bagley from the website LoveYouMentory.com. He's uh, he's teaching us about what he's learning about creating a legendary kind of a big time non mediocre love, uh, a lasting love. Really, stick with us, folks. We'll be back more with Nate in just a minute.
Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today, uh, in preparation for Valentine's Day, we're talking about love and how to avoid settling for mediocre love. Nate Bagley joins us. He is uh, the founder of the website Love Humanity, and he has made it a personal mission in life to go figure out, really, I guess, the principles, the keys to highly, I guess, successful, strong love. Exactly. Non-mediocre. So def- define what a mediocre love looks like, because some people out there might be thinking, eh, I got it. I'm in love. Yeah, I think um, I think mediocre love, it would be the type of love where you're just kind of sliding through life. And uh, what's 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 his name? Steve um, sliding versus deciding. Ooh. Who, um, let me look. I'll tell you. You just uh, keep going. Just, OK, so. The idea behind uh, mediocre love for me is people who are just kind of complacent. They just kind of slide from one transition to the next, from one stage of life to the next without ever really having conversations. Scott Stanley? Scott Stanley. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. love Scott. He's Scott awesome. Stanley. He's yeah. got a blog called Sliding Versus Deciding and probably a book also. Yeah. And the idea is that when you intentionally decide what how your life is going to look and how you're going to experience these big life and, and even the small life cha- transitions and changes, that it, it makes um, – it elevates your game and makes you a lot more decisive and aware of how you're showing up in your relationship. Right. Um, a great example of this is I've, I've got two quick stories I can share yeah, with you. Yeah, please. Um, one, I know of a couple who he came home. The husband came home one day from work, walked in the door and yelled, honey, I'm home and heard no response. Walks through the house, ends up finding his wife on the computer looking at Pinterest. And he goes, hey, babe, how's it going? And she doesn't even look up from the screen and goes, hey. And he goes, no, 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 no. We're going to do this again. So he leaves the house, comes back in a few minutes later and goes, honey, I'm home. And she rounds the corner and goes, <laughs> Steve. And she just jumping up and down, screaming, yeah. gives him a big hug and a kiss. And they loved that moment so much that they decided to make it a tradition. So now whenever somebody comes home, the yeah. partner who's home waiting for them makes a fuss over them for 30 seconds. And that one intentional decision to celebrate when your spouse comes home completely had like created a transformation around their relationship and that was deciding yeah it's an intentional instead of just sliding into you know oh he comes home every day around this time and we're just going to move right into life together they they created a moment around this one transition point right and now it's like the the puppy dog you know you know somebody's always excited to see you when you come home regardless of how bad your day except they don't lick your face yeah or maybe they do well you never know but you know what's so cool about that like that's and how many times a day do you get to choose you're just making yeah. a choice. Yep. And There's, we choose to just ignore each other all exactly. the time. There's four major touch points during a day. When mm-hmm. you wake up, when you leave for work, when you come home from work, and when you go to bed, yeah. that you can create these special moments. Um, another great story of somebody who's deciding rather than sliding is my friends Josh and Jenny Solar. They live in Kansas City, and they were on a road trip as a family. They had their three kids in the back seat driving down the freeway, and Josh leans over to Jenny. He pulls the car over to the side of the road in the middle of the freeway. And I guess not in the middle of the freeway, yeah, but pulls the car yeah, to the side, side of the road of the and looks at Jenny and says, hey, Jenny, uh, get out of the car. And she's like, I'm not getting out of the car. <laughs> and he's like, Jenny, get out of the car. And she's like, Josh, I'm not getting out of the car. It's raining cats and dogs outside. And he says, Jenny, get out of the car. I want to make out in the rain with you. Wow. And they, you know, he turns they out. Did. Yeah, they got out of the car. They they made out in the rain. And I'm thinking, okay, now how many people? Do they have kids? Down the, they have three kids. They're in the backseat just yep. like, what the heck? So Josh, he told me, he looked in the backseat and he's like, kids, do you want to go play in the rain? And they said, no. And he said, fine, you can watch me and mommy kiss. And so they got out and made out in the rain. But how many people would just keep driving or complain about the rain while they're driving? But Josh is like, I have an opportunity to make a romantic memory. 
that you'll never forget. That you'll never forget. And he can tell that story for, for the rest of his well, life. And then how many wives might be so practical they'll be like, I'm not, I don't want to get wet. <laughs> right. I don't want my hair wet. Right. So all of a sudden our practicality kicks in and that uh-huh. just enables us to slide. Yep. And jo- John Gottman calls that uh, bids. Yeah, exactly. You, bids you, and turns. Yeah. So you've got the uh, – in that situation it was um, Josh who was bidding his partner Jenny. And if Jenny would have said, no, thanks, I don't want to do that, then she's turning away and yeah. not accepting the bid. It happens all the time. And so part of what you're saying I guess is be intentional. Just make your love something that you're going to actually decide to do like Scott Stanley says – Instead of hoping you find it, hoping you happen upon it. The coolest thing, I think, about love is that you get to decide what it looks like, what your relationship looks like, how it feels, how you interact with each other. Uh, There are so many people who just like kind of coast through life Mm -hmm. and their relation, whatever happens in their relationship just happens. But it's so magical. It is so cool when a couple intentionally builds their relationship around what's important to them and around what's important to their partner and you just like there's nothing more powerful i can't tell you how cool it's been to sit in the presence of some of these couples and you can you can literally feel the love and it's this contagious thing and once you get a taste of what it looks like once you hear a josh and jenny story you start to go holy crap how can i have that i want that what what does it take to have that and i think that the most important thing to me is – the most interesting thing to me is it's not as hard as a lot of people think it is. Right. I, I think we want to pretend like it's that hard. But really what it is, it seems like, is you're vulnerable. Yeah. Right? So it's – you're afraid. Like what if she doesn't reciprocate? Right. What if I put myself out there and say, come on, let's let's pull over and let's go kiss in the rain? And she's like, you're weird. <laughs> you are weird. Yep. There's definitely that fear of rejection. And all of a sudden, yeah. And you can see that you could almost see that like a young newlywed couple would do that, and the one of them would say, "You're weird," um, and then they don't do it again. Yep. So I'm not going to risk again. Once you get shot down once, it's like mm-hmm. mm, maybe I'll stop trying. So I guess part of what you're learning too is just you you got to make it intentional, but you really have to keep going. Yeah, this doesn't end. And if you do get shot down, if you do make the effort and get shot down, be honest about it. Be honest about how it made you feel, and say, "Hey, I wanted to do this special thing with you, and you said no, and it hurt." Yeah, and I want to keep trying to do these special things with you, but it would mean a lot to me if you would take me up on it. Yeah, you know, and, and not think and, yeah. I'm ridiculous. And don't name call. Yeah, and don't name call. Great. Don't be such a baby, man. Oh, babies. Um, well, these are great lessons. What What else are you seeing? What else? Because you've now seen, you've interviewed about eighty something people. Uh huh. What What are the, some other learnings that stand out that you think? Okay, I've got to. I've got to remember that one. Yeah. So we talked about love as a skill. Uh huh. We talked about creating some important rituals. Right. Uh, one of the most powerful lessons that I learned came um, from this couple that I met in southern Georgia, uh, Joseph and Ann Gaston. And they had been married for about 60 years, really fascinating couple. And at the end of our, my conversation with them, I turned to Ann and said, Ann, if you could give one piece of advice to single people like me, what would it be? Without missing a beat, she looked at me and said, don't be afraid to be the one who loves the most. Mm. And I was like, oh, man, you got to be huge. you got to be kidding me. Like yeah. we're raised in a culture where people say, you know, he who cares the least has the most power. Right. And I we're hate that. Phrase, yeah, but it's me true. Too. But it, I mean, you see it, but it doesn't have to be right. And and maybe that maybe that strategy works to score a couple of dates and to right. flirt with each other. But 
if you want the 60 year relationship, here's this woman who had been through, who'd been in, been married more than twice as long as I'd been alive. She obviously knows something I don't know. Yeah. And, and obviously that relationship is, has to be taken with, or that advice needs to be taken within context. Like if you're in an abusive relationship, yeah. you can't be the one who, who's constantly forgiving and, and such. But uh, it kind of goes along with that vulnerability piece where if you want to have extraordinary love and a love that lasts, you got to be the one who's willing to take the risk. Mm-hmm. You got to be the one who's, who apologizes first, who says, I'm sorry, or asks for forgiveness, admits when they're wrong. You got to be the one who maybe uh, makes a bid for intimacy, even though it might be scary and you might be facing rejection. You got to be the one who maybe gives up something that's really important to you so your partner can have something that's really important to them. Mm-hmm. And being the one who's willing to love the most is if you have two partners who have that mentality together. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Like, and, and, how amazing would that be? And if you only have one partner, it the other partner has a reason that they're afraid to love. Right. There's some reason. I mean, humans would want to be loved. Yep. And so if they're not doing it, you're still increasing your odds. Yeah. Because if you shut it down and you're not going to do it and they're not going to do it, then you, you won't have the love. Yeah. And I think when you do take on that mentality, a lot of people don't want to take that risk because they don't feel safe taking the risk. Right. But if you start living that way and being the one who's willing to love the most, you create a space in your relationship that feels very safe. And yeah. suddenly that person over time, I believe, will open up right. and start taking those risks along with you. See, that's what's cool about a lot of this is, you know, it's just kind of some of it's age old wisdom, some of it's the latest and greatest research. But that's what I've always found in the world of marriage and relationships is there's a ton of information, but it's not out there. Yeah. There's not a lot of great marketing of the information. There's a lot of people that want to sell their book. Yep. But usually they're a one or two trick pony. Yeah. And there's very few that have, you know, kind of an endless source of ideas. And the, the neat thing about love is there there are a million ways to create it. So many ways. It's which ridiculous. is why the idea of the love humanity is cool because there's no end to the what you learn from every interview. There really isn't. I re-listened to interviews and it it blows my mind. Um, I was listening to one the other day, my friends Ty and Terry, they live in Omaha, Nebraska. And when I interviewed them, uh, Terry said that her goal every day when she wakes up in the morning is to love her husband Ty so that at the end of his life, um, he would sit there and think, wow, Terry was the greatest earthly blessing in my life and I'm a better man because of how she loved me. And then a few months ago, they were on vacation and passed away in a car accident. Oh, my heavens. And like tragic, tragic news. It was heartbreaking and left a community completely stunned. And the first thing that came to my mind was that phrase that she said, I want to love my husband so that at the end of his life, he thinks Terry is the greatest earthly blessing. Oh, that's great. I'm like, they totally pulled it off. They did it. And they went out of this world together. And how how amazing, Matt, would it be if everybody thought that about their partner? Oh, and and even and loved them that way. And imagine the kids get to watch that. Children are watching their parents creating that level of intentional love. Yeah, that's huge. It's amazing. That would be amazing. Well, and it. I think it can happen. It's just. But in, I can just imagine a listener out there thinking, "Well, yeah, that's okay, but you don't know my husband." Yeah. So so when somebody says that to you, uh-huh. what do you say? Uh, you know. I think a lot of people don't think this type of love is possible because they haven't seen it. Yeah. People people learn to love from the role models and examples they have access to. And I think that the men or the women who just aren't like that probably have never been taught to be like that. They've Maybe their parents or their community was never like that, and they've never been shown what's possible. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I think that it's really valuable for people to get exposed. You've heard the phrase, uh, Jim Rohn, I think, said it. You're the av- you're the average of the five people you spend the most yeah, time with. Right. Yeah. I'm a firm believer that your relationship is the average of the f- five couples you spend the most time with. Hmm. So if your relationship is struggling, look at the other couples in in your life. You know, are your friends the kind of people who complain about their spouse behind their back? Are they, they, are right. they, are they impatient? Are they short with them? Do they complain a lot? You know, do they they have a lot of friction and tension around money or around the kids or around sharing responsibilities? Or are they the type, type of couples, are you surrounding yourself with the type of couples who love their spouse, right. who totally praise them? There's There was a study done. Um, they compiled over 30 years of relationship research and tried to identify the key factors in like the most the most common factors and what what caused the most amazing relationships. The, and the three that they came up with were love, commitment, and then um, there's this idea of you believe the, – the third, the third principle was that you believe that your partner is the absolute best partner in the world and that your relationship mm-hmm. is absolutely incre- incredible. It's like yeah. you have to have this happiness delusion. Yeah. And when you're surrounded with other people who are delusionally happy and and think that they're in the most amazing relationship in the world, you're going to think yeah, you, about it. Yeah, you start looking for the signs. Yeah. And and the inverse is true, right? So when you yep. – well, everyone else is nitpicking their husbands. In fact, they, there's research about when you, one partner – when one friend divorces, the likelihood of you divorcing uh-huh. goes up. When oh, yeah. family members divorce, the likelihood of you divorcing goes up. Because all of a sudden the yep. delusion – It's like 75%. Mm-hmm. It goes up it. like dramatically, yeah. There was a Pew Research study that I read this week. That, and it depends on if it's a sibling, that. if it's a yeah. – yeah, it's it's scary. Yeah, divorce is contagious. It is. And contention is contagious. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it's called so, behavioral contagion. Exactly, and contagion theory, which also means you could – the opposite is true. So happiness could also be contagious. Absolutely. Yeah. So surround yourself with happy people who love their lives and you'll start to see a relationship transform a little well, bit. Well, and and maybe too start reading, start studying, start looking for positive examples, role models. That's why the Lovementary, yeah. I mean if you just read one a day or listen to one podcast a day. Yep. That was my big thing is I'm like, okay, look at the media. We've got two extremes in the media. We've got the hyper-romanticized, The Bachelor, you know, mm-hmm. Disney movies, Twilight on one side. And then on the other side, you've got the Desperate Housewives, like really cynical celebrity scandals. And basically, whenever you hear about love in, yeah. in the media, it's either hyper-romanticized and completely unrealistic <laughs> or just trash. Yeah. And I'm like, how can I find? How can I put a spotlight on some of these couples who are doing it right? And realistically, they have problems and they have struggles, yeah. and they love each other dearly mm-hmm. and really invest a lot in creating something amazing that's totally doable. Yeah, yeah you don't. We it is. We we seem to just pick up more of a love is the Bachelor. Yeah, the show, The Bachelor. Yeah, <laughs> and you're like, no. Oh, then it's the Kardashians, right? I mean, yeah, hard hard pass. Yeah. Something's not right. There are a lot of things that are not right. But the beauty of the podcast is I, I, I can't tell you how many emails I get from people who are like, wow, this gave me hope. Or, yeah. oh, this is what I can have. Or, wow, I'm changing you know, this about my, myself and my life so I can have the type of love that Ty and Terry have. Or right. have the kind of moments that Josh and Jenny had. Or, you know, I'm really throwing myself into my relationship like uh, Anne said, you know, be the one who lo- don't be afraid to be the one who loves the most. And these little tidbits of wisdom that these people have obtained over decades of marriage of having great relationships. Those are the things that are really, I think, helping couples oh, yeah. thrive. And and it, when you think too, it's just information, right? Yeah. But that's kind of all you need. And then, a, and then an action information, a little bit of hope and some yeah. action. Yeah. Just yeah. act on it. So 
even today, anybody listening, take one thing you've learned today and go do it. <laughs> I mean, now I know Ben's going to go home, and I just I hope he's praying it's raining. You're going to celebrate when your when your wife walks in the door, right? If he had a wife. <laughs> Yeah, I don't have a wife. So well, one day. Well, yeah. me neither. I don't have a wife either. So we're in the same club. He, oh, we'll pound it. Ben Ben has ice cream. Ice cream is delicious. I think it's the next next best thing to having a wife. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's kind of a deterrent not to have a wife, though. Yeah. So yeah, you're using it. You're using it. I think to to supplant to replace. Is that your coping mechanism? Yeah, it's are you he makes, self-medicating he makes ice, ice cream. cream. He doesn't exactly, even just eat yeah. it, he makes it. You make it? I know. He's so, an ice creamer. What do they call you? Um dealer. He's an ice Supplier. cream dealer. He's an ice cream yeah. dealer. <laughs> anyway, we appreciate you, Nate. That's great stuff. Again, the website is loveumentary.com. Loveumentary.com. And you can also go look up his TED talk, uh, Fight Naked and Other Epic Love Strategies by Nate Bagley. Thank you, Nathan. My pleasure. Thanks appreciate for having you. me. Keep up the great work. I will. Uh, and again, everybody, take it in. And what's one thing you've learned from Nate today that you need to go implement in your life? I mean, he just he cited, I think, three or four scholars in the field and four or five stories from friends and interviews that he's done. So go check out his blog, his blog and his podcast and keep learning about love, folks. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Such great uh, stuff. That's one of the reasons we do this show is to to give you insight and more information that you don't necessarily get, I guess, kind of in the just mainstream media. It's There are incredibly, um, I don't know, incredibly profound lessons and research that exist about healthy relationships. And some of the information you hear about divorce rates aren't even accurate because they're, you know, they're more complicated to explain. Uh, even a divorce rate of like 50 percent, that's not accurate. 50 percent of one generation, baby boomers, had a higher uh, divorce rate than millennials do, right, or than X-Gen and so or why. So when you think about it. There's a lot of information and a lot of it's misinformation, which is the goal of the show is to help you cut through some of these these issues and get down to some real basic truth. But the other interesting thing is some of the best lessons you're going to ever get on love, on family, on parenting, on relationships, they're in your own life. Oh, no, my parents were messed up. Well, sure they were. Everybody's parents are messed up. It's that's I think why we have parents. So we can learn and so we can figure stuff out and so we can understand how to adapt to imperfection. But um, really, take it seriously. What if all of a sudden you just made a, a sincere goal to improve your love with your partner? Just improve it. You don't even need to go buy a bunch of books. You could go look up a blog. You could just... 
go to our podcast and download, just look up relationships or marriage uh, on the Matt Townsend show. If you put marriage and Matt Townsend show in Google, you're going to come up with a bunch of different shows that you can go listen to and just start learning. And then take one learning every day and say, what's the most important thing I can do today to show more love? And even tell your spouse, hun, today, I, I mean, I'm really working on love now. I want to be a better partner. Risk. Say, say something. Risk it. Put yourself out there. Set the expectation. Anyway, folks, um, I don't believe you're going to necessarily find the right person. You got to become the right person with each other. We'll take a break, folks. That's hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show. Next hour, more tools, more ideas to help you love stronger. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I love talking to people that are at the top of their field, right? The top of their game. I mean, some people are sitting there like, well, I don't like people that try to make it sound that simple. And, um, you know, you don't have to go chasing money. You don't have to go be in love with money. And But the reality is there are people, and if you've ever been around somebody, I just sat down with somebody yesterday that is running a huge company, multi-billion dollar company. And he, with thousands of employees and tens of thousands of employees, and it's it's interesting how organized he really is and how it all comes down to very basic principles in his mind, in his, in his head. It really is about principles. And I think that's all Brian was teaching us is there's just certain principles that are going to lead to success. You can argue against them if you want, but it's hard to argue that companies that focus on sales make more sales. I mean, if if all of a sudden the average uh, corporation is spending 25% of their workforce, 30% of their money on creating and generating sales – and uh, you know, a little homegrown business is spending ten percent on sales. Wouldn't it make sense that the corporation's going to make more money? Right? That's not brain surgery. And yet, as a small business owner, it's hard to focus on sales if you don't love sales. I'd rather create content any day, but that's useless if no one's going to go sell the content. So if you want a company to succeed, you really need to do what works. How about just long-term thinking versus short-term thinking? Have you been so busy just living your life day in and day out that you didn't plan ahead for something down the road? You ever had a trip that you knew you were going to take in, you know, six months from now? And then you waited till three weeks before to get your passport? Oh, just long-term thinking, you know, it helps. It's not perfect, but it, it can certainly help. So 
Anyway, it's uh, it's just some basic information, um, and uh, but also, I think if you just look at uh, like Brian Tracy's success rate, it's pretty good. Pretty good. If you're selling millions and millions of books a year, you're doing you're doing okay. Doesn't make doesn't mean it's all perfect and great, but he's living his principles. He is creating sales. He is an entrepreneur. He is looking long term. If you're trying to grow a business, you probably ought to grow some of those principles as well. But there might be more uh, other things we can be doing. Let me give you a few more that that will definitely impact your ability to to live better. We might actually need to go back into our lives and eliminate some things, right? Get rid of certain things. There's a listen to this story of a 90-year-old woman um, from Michigan decided to turn her cancer diagnosis into an excuse to travel across the United States. The woman named Norma is accompanied by her son Tim, daughter-in-law Ramey, and their poodle Ringo. And they are out documenting their adventures via Facebook page, Driving Miss Norma. (laughs) Norma learned of her cancer within two weeks of her husband's death and told her son prior to the diagnosis that she had no interest in treatment. Her son and his wife then explained to the doctor they would be driving her around the country in her RV and ultimately receiving his blessing. As doctors, we see what cancer treatment looks like every day, he said. ICU, nursing homes, awful side effects, and honestly, there is no guarantee she will survive the initial surgery to remove the mass. You're doing exactly what I want to do in this situation. Have a fantastic trip, the doctor said. In August, the family upgraded their motor home to a larger 36-foot model and began their trip by traveling to Mount Rushmore in South Dakota before continuing through the country, visiting other landmarks, historical sites such as Kennedy Space Center in Florida, Ramey uh, told ABC News that in addition to seeing the sites and gaining more than 100,000 likes on her Facebook page, Norma's health seems to be improving. How cool is that? She's getting better, maybe, or at least feeling better. She's receiving the benefits of being different, doing something different. Notice she set a goal. She's figured out how the goal is going to work. What a great way. If, if, you gotta, if you got cancer and you got to deal with cancer, it sure sounds like a better way to do it. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. It's just technology. But I'm telling you, I have a feeling we are getting lulled to sleep. And we are sleeping through our own lives. The minute you have a free second, do you reach for your cell phone? Do you have to go check Facebook to see what your million friends are doing or have done? What is it doing to us? It's killing us. And again, it's just tech. I get it. It's just technology. However, this is still your life. And if you're going to spend the rest of your life just caught up in technology, what lesson are we sending our children? So... Before we sit there and try to fix our children's use of technology, make sure you take a really strong inventory of yourself. Are you addicted? If you lost your phone, would your life completely fall apart? Well, yeah. Who would I Who would I like? Well, I don't know. But that's pretty pitiful. 
Because if you lost your phone, you're still you, right? Well, yeah, but I don't know my friends' names or their numbers. Well, that's weird. Maybe they're not your real friends then. Come on. Come on. Hey, uh, you know, tech is being used everywhere. If you, I don't know if you heard this story about uh, cops. Um, North, Northeast Ohio police are hoping to figure out who left a bag of methamphetamine in a hotel. Trash, I guess. And they, they, they feel horrible. The police department feels horrible for the owner's loss and wants to help. The tongue-in-cheek message was posted Tuesday to the Macedonia Police Facebook page and asked the owners of the drugs to call or stop by to claim them so officers can, in their words, make your day. It's a trap! <laughs> a photograph shows a baggie containing what detectives say is about a gram of high-grade crystal methamphetamine worth as much as 160 bucks. The detective at the department, about 20 miles southeast of Cleveland, said there were numerous empty bags in the hotel trash can. Police haven't identified who rented the room using a, uh, a gift card. Um, so if you're out there and you've lost $160 worth of high-grade crystal meth, about a gram's worth, give them a call. Or give us a call. No, don't give us a call. <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't give us a call. Ben, give the Macedonia Police Department a call. They're worried. They're worried about you. See, you can use tech to help people who have lost things. It's that simple. By the way, I used tech to find my my iPad once when I dropped it off my car, actually. I left it on my hood of my car. Drove away. I, I've only heard of, like, women doing that with their purses. Okay. Well, you need to get out more. Ben... Because I'm not a woman and it wasn't in a purse. It was on my roof of my car and I drove away. And I called my son and I'm like, have you seen my iPad? And he's like, no. And I said, it's missing. I lost it. And I was terrified. And he's like, well, Dad, have you looked it up? Have you have you tried to the find my iPhone app and the find my iPad app? And I'm like, no, what are you talking about? And about a minute later, he had found my iPad. He said, Dad, I found your iPad. It's traveling <laughs> South on I-15. <gasps> what? Anyway, we te- we contacted the iPad, told them to call this number. We know where you are. And within about an hour, hour and a half, we had our iPad back. Pretty cool. Tech is good. Tech making me happy. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. More fun, more tools to help you live longer and stronger. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. So do you have kids and uh, technology? All of a sudden, your kids come in. You know, they used to say, hi, Dad. Hi, Mom. Can I have something to eat? Now they just get right to their tech. They sit on the couch. They uh, they veg a little bit. They get into their their little zone, their world. And um, what we uh, what we try to do is we try to stay ahead of the tech 
you don't necessarily want to discourage the tech, right? Because this isn't going away. But how are you supposed to raise a family? How are you supposed to raise, you know, kids when their heads are always on a phone? We just bought this brand new car, and this car is so tech heavy, it's crazy. Like, literally, we almost have to insure the car for more uh, simply because once the tech goes out on the car, we're in trouble. Like, nothing will work. It has a main screen, I don't know, about a 10-inch screen. Maybe it's not that big. I don't know, about a large iPad, whatever size that is, um, that is the is the screen that controls everything in my car. But it can also – you can pick up Wi-Fi. You can do all of these different things. So it's gotten to the point that our car not only has a like a television in it, but it has Wi-Fi connectivity. It has everything you could ever imagine. It's taking over, folks. It's going to kill us. Or is it? Well, our next guest, Janelle Burley Hoffman, is is, uh, is going to be coming on. And she's going to help us understand how to integrate tech into our everyday lives. You know, kids are using it. Toddlers are using it. Whether it's iPads or iPods, you know, the crazy kicker is that uh, these gadgets sometimes can be run uh, more efficiently by by the kids than even their parents. So this saturation of technology in our everyday life, it may have some of us worried, right? Is our family tech healthy? What kind of boundaries ought to be set to create a healthier family and a balance between family and modern technology? Well, Janelle Burley Hoffman is the author of the article that uh, we, we found on Huffington Post, 10 Traits of Tech Healthy Families. She joins us now from Massachusetts to talk about her article. Ms. Hoffman, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. This, I mean, to me, I have six kids, and this is huge, this idea of technology kind of taking over my family. Talk to us about, uh, first of all, you know, how did, how did you get started in this focus of yours on technology and family? Sure. So just like you, um, it was on my mind as a mother of five and parenting in the digital space. And also my work with youth and community and parenting regionally here in Massachusetts, I was seeing how much it was on the minds of young people and their families. And so when my oldest son, who is now 16, was 13, I he wanted his first smartphone, of course. And I wanted to make sure that when I gave him the technology, I was doing it thoughtfully and mindfully. I wasn't just automatically handing it over. Right. And so I wrote him an 18th contract outlining my <laughs> expectations um, and agreement of how we would use the technology and really how I thought he could use it in a very specific way, like in how I wanted him to turn it off at certain times in the night. And I still wanted him, you know, I wanted to remind him that what he said over the device, he had to be willing to say to someone's face, you know, because it's so easy to be brave. Right. And then, of course, there were some points in there that, was a reflection on how I wanted the technology to not take away his adolescence or replace some of those human experiences that are important around growing up. And so from there, um, I shared the contract, obviously, uh, with my husband and my son. And then I shared it on my blog, both on my website and on the Huffington Post, and it it went viral. And this was back in 2012. And, And from there... The work really shifted from um, my family and a regional perspective to this big international conversation, bringing the book I Rules to life and talking to schools and to teachers and parents and students themselves 
all over the world about this very conversation of how do we integrate technology in a way that's exciting and new and can enhance our lives, but how do we address some of the challenges and changes um, that happen for us in the everyday around it? Mm, that is a super proactive as a parent, but I mean, really, you took on the issue that many of us are are fighting and, and trying to balance every day. It's also like you you didn't just try to brush it aside and pretend like it's not an issue, but you 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 wanted to get some control over it. And I guess I guess one of the first keys is to not re- necessarily reject technology, but to kind of to to manage it, to lead it. Absolutely, I think as the adults. Um, we need to be first reflecting on our own use. You know, what, what, in what ways are we using the technology? Is it balanced in our lives? Is, are we using it in a way that feels good to us, or do we already feel pulled by it? What's our level of digital literacy or digital fluency around the devices? Are we resisting it? Are we afraid of it? You know, how are we thinking about the technology before we automatically just hand it to a child and expect them, while they can be really tech-savvy as part of the digital generation, but we still have the wisdom of the teachings that are important and integrating that process to the technology. You know, just because we can hand over all the technology in the world to a child doesn't mean that we should all at once, that we should be introducing it to them a little at a time so that they, we can set them up for that level of success with the technology. As you know, um, parenting in, in a busy, full house, in modern-day parenting, none of us want to introduce something that's going to add more struggle. Right, right. We right. want to address some of these issues. Like It's, it's already challenging enough <laughs> it's to so run a true. family. It's so, so true. Is so there... we all go out and buy these devices that, that can, can add more stress. But I think if we take that step back and say, how do we want it, right? Yes, the technology is here, but how do we want it in our lives? And that, you might answer that question different than I might or someone right. else, but it's really important that we reflect on it. Yeah, and, and you use our brains, right? And th- we're here for a purpose. We ha- we're having a family for a purpose, and that purpose isn't to just ignore each other and to be controlled by our devices. I also love that you, you focus it on a family as well, like because you know, and families come in every shape and size. One of the powerful things, though, is it, it, it's a system, right? This a family is a is a is a structure and an organization, and it has rules and it has boundaries. And um, when you talk about your uh, article, ten traits of tech healthy families, well, give us some ideas that come from that uh, about what actually what what would be essential or important to make sure we're looking at to create a tech healthy family. This is the reason I use the term tech healthy is because I want to think about it like we would other areas of health and wellness, whether it's physical health or mental health or emotional health, social health. I want to start introducing technology in that same way, right? So we might tell our children that they can't, they can have a cookie for dessert, but they can't have a cookie for every single meal and never eat a vegetable, right? So we want to look at it from a place of, of balance that we can have some of it and we can take our time with it. So, so in the article, I think one of the most foundational pieces of, of my work is that it's not up to me to tell people what they should be doing with the technology, but instead offering them the opportunity to reflect on what they want from the technology. Mm. And where we begin with that is thinking about what our values are as a family, what our principles and cornerstones that are guiding us in other areas of our lives, in the other ways and methods we're teaching our kids, and then applying that to the screen. 
That's such a great – I just was thinking as you were saying that, like we have a daughter that's married, has a be- we have a beautiful grandbaby that – and they come over and they'll walk in the house. They're coming to visit and there's this lull between when they arrive and when people put their technology away. And there's this awkward silence and, and I'm sitting there thinking we need to sit down with our kids and talk about these things. Like what do we want people to feel when they come over? When they walk in, and I mean, all that is is a conversation, right? Like, like you're saying, it's just a question we need to answer. Exactly, and young people can be part of that conversation. Too, right? Of, you know, what does this look like, and what message does this send about what's important, and and being present. And it's not the call to action is not for us to be perfect, or not that we'd never make a mistake, or you know that we aren't always learning. I think that's the one great thing about parenting is that we're learning every single right. day about ourselves, about our children, about the way that they interact in all different ways, but with the technology. So really making this about about reflection, that we have this opportunity because the technology is new for all of us, right? There's nobody ahead of us saying, when did my mom allow me to go on Instagram? Or when is the right, you know, when did I get my first smartphone? That we're really trailblazing this as right. a generation of parents right now. So we need each other. We need these conversations. But also we need to be reflecting in our, in our own lives and families. So that, that, that takes a little bit of work. You know, when I teach a class or um, give a talk, people will say, oh, I thought you were going to give me three simple steps that would guarantee success and we would live happily ever after. And we all know that's, number one, not how life or parenting works. So, of course, the technology, especially because it's so new, is not going to be every different in any way from that. We're going to have to be reevaluating and, and reassessing. And I think that's why contracting and coming up with these agreements and having a lot of communication around this space is critical because our kids grow and change, the technology shifts and changes, but what can stay the same and what's reflected in the 10 tech healthy habits of families is that the values stay the same even as the external world shifts. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that. And and just the mere fact that we've had a discussion around our values and principles, that's a killer foundation. Let's take a break. We'll come back. We'll have more with Janelle Burley Hoffman. You, you can go to her website, JanelleBurleyHoffman.com. And uh, while you're there, you can also be looking for her book, uh, I Rules, What Every Tech Healthy Family Needs to Know About Selfies, Sexting, Gaming, and Growing Up. When we come back, we'll continue uh, talking about the different dialogues or discussions we need to hold as a family um, and, and kind of just try to understand and create some 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 structure around uh, technology in our home. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Stick with us. everybody. A little uh, Mr. Roboto from Styx. Mm. Some cool music right there. See, I remember back in the day when listening to music like that would rot your brain. Nope. Now it's 12 hours of screen time. That's going to rot your brain. So who better to help us than uh, Janelle Burley Hoffman, 
who is the author of the book iRules, What Every Tech Healthy Family Needs to Know About Selfies, Sexting, Gaming, and Growing Up. She also wrote an article called 10 Traits of Tech Healthy Families. And she's walking us through the conversations we need to have with our kids when it comes to technology. Welcome back, Janelle Burley-Hoffman. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. This is such, a, I think, an essential uh, uh, foundation we need around our technology. And what I love, too, is how you set it up really as there's some dialogues, there's discussions we need to have with our kids. And one of them is you said uh, last last before the break about the fact that we need to kind of set up our values and our principles. We need to kind of shore those up for what we want to be as a family. And then you also talk about the fact that we need families, um, need that the, the, they need to, I guess, decide if they're going to be digitally literate. What do you mean by that? Sure. So, so this is a great opportunity for, for parents to reflect on how comfortable they are around the technology. And to parent in the digital space, it doesn't mean that we need to know how to code or that we need to be tech experts ourselves, but we want to have a fluency in it, right? We want to have an understanding not just in our own use, but also in our individual child's use. Right. So if we think about our children in different ways. They have different behaviors. They probably have different appetites, right? Some of them might eat a lot. Some of them might eat like birds. Well, the way they're going to interact with the technology is going to be different, too. They're going to have different tech tendencies, and we want to know that about our child. Hmm. And we want to parent and curate the experience for them so that they, again, can we come back to this word help, so that they interact in a healthy way. So, so what does that mean, and what does that look like? Well, just like we would ask our children, you know, who's going to hang out and be playing down at the soccer field? Who will you be with? Um, what time will you be home? You know, if we think of, of a middle schooler in that regard. And, you know, do you need a ride? How will you contact me? We have all of these conversations away from the screen. And we want to be having that same kind of knowledge and interaction with our kids on the screen, mm. right? So who do you text with? Where are you online? What social networks? What games are you playing? Asking questions when in doubt, as parents get curious, why do you like it? How will you use it? Why does it feel important for you to have it? So again, these are all questions we can ask before allowing a certain social network or allowing a device, during or after we've already said yes. It's never too late to come back and reassess some of the things we've said yes to and ask the question of the family, right? What's working? What's going really well? And what is it? Right. And, and this is something you, you can't afford to just leave it to your child. I mean, you want to be informed, like you say. You, you want to be up to date. Absolutely. And kids feel really safe and really happy and positive when they have boundaries, when they know what the expectations are. Just like all of us in our own in the workplace or, you know, in our, in our relationships, we want to know, you know, where are the boundaries here? What is the expectation? What's the, again, where, where am I supposed to be? What's okay? Who mm. can I go for if I've made a mistake or I need some help? You know, asking who are my askable adults? Because no child should have to figure out the Internet and all of the things that go on with the Internet on their own. Right. They need people. They need guidance. They need models. And it doesn't necessarily have to be people who are, absolutely experts on the technology, but they they need, we can't just hand over the technology and hope for the best. Yeah, I, I use the analogy often, if we wanted to teach our child to cook a meal, we're going to think of this as a process, right? right? We're going to say, okay, perhaps, you know, when they're a young child, preschool age, they'll stand with us in the kitchen. 
we'll read the recipe for them. They might get to mix in the bowl. Then when they get a little bit older, we might let them chop some of the vegetables to go into the soup so they get to use the knife after we've taught them. And then as they get older, maybe they can bake a cake on their own with the ultimate goal being that someday they can feed themselves, Hmm. right? That, Mm -hmm. That we've taught them enough. And we would never just say, here's the ingredients, here's the recipe, here's some utensils, and be careful, sometimes the stove gets hot. Yeah. That wouldn't be enough. No, you you need more, don't you? You make them, you call them eye rules. So through these discussions and even just through your learnings or even mistakes that happen, we could also come up with some eye rules. Explain what an eye rule is. Sure. So an eye rule is an agreement or a, a boundary around the technology. And again, these limits and boundaries and expectations for our kids help them know what what we value and where the limits are. And just so some examples of different eye rules can be a, a specific time we want our children to turn the device off at night right. or a specific time for usage. A lot of families are, you know, one of the big questions I hear right now is a lot of screen time is for homework and it's hard to know, you know, how much is too much and what is normal and all of this. And, and so allowing time for just some freedom for the kids to, whether it's, you know, to text with friends or to use social networks to go on the games. And then there's time to get down to business where they're using it for schoolwork and really having a different a conversation around our kids to help them differentiate is important. Mm. Also outlining, you know, eye rules can include things in terms of behaviors, right? So that social emotional health, that the kind of content we want them viewing, the types of things they want to share, also, to protect their personal information. Kids don't naturally know. You know, a little bit they're taught in school now, but to protect their passwords, that no one should ever ask for their name and birth date or any banking or credit card information, that if any of those things come up through a gaming or the app store, that, that they need to come to a parent or another caregiver or babysitter because those things are private and personal information. You know, just teaching them these foundational usage tips is really important as as they go forward. It's part of the things that our kids need to learn in modern society. Yeah. We we make a big deal um, about that they're, they're probably going to end up seeing something on the Internet that they, they don't feel they should be looking at. And what they should do yeah. when they come across something like that, instead of just hiding it, going quiet, and pretending like they didn't see it, we always just tell them, come tell us. We'll help you turn it off. We'll help you get off the page. And but Because otherwise, there's this shame that could be associated with some things that are on there or just naive you know, exploration that could end up harming Absolutely. them. Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up because, again, this is a critical teaching. And when you say to a child, I, you may stumble across something that you, you know, I, I'll ask this question when I'm in schools and, and doing programming to students, how many of you, and this could be age eight all the way through co- a college lecture, how many of you have seen something online you wish you didn't see? Hmm. And 100% of the time, 100% of the students put their hands up. Yeah. And this doesn't necessarily mean that it's something explicit or particularly violent or something in a lot of cases that parental controls might block. It might just be something that they didn't understand they weren't sure if it was true, something that felt confusing. Right. So, so it's important that we have these things in place so our children know, I'm here for you. I can handle it. Right? That's a really powerful sentiment. And if we can't be that person as their parents, that we're directing them to somebody that can. Yeah, man, that's a—what do you call them? Uh, what do you call the person that they can go to? 
The askable adult. That's such a great term, isn't it? The askable adult. And um, I mean, I guess ideally we should always as a parent try to be the askable adult, right? Um, Yes. That's, that's the idealistic point of view. Well, the funny thing is, though, every teenager also knows there's some things we just don't ask mom and dad, except <laughs> except even that would be great if you could make yourself you know, available in such a way that it's askable. I, I love another part of your, um, your 10 tech family traits um, is the fact that we're having fun with technology. The benefit of technology, there's so much that you can do with it now, and our family will just gather together and... and um, like on Apple TV, and, and we can just shoot up really funny videos that we all watch. And for an hour, we can all throw up our favorite videos and share them as a family. Absolutely. I think we cannot underestimate how fun and how engaging the technology really is and how convenient and how it does have a lot of positive contributions to, to family life when we use it that way. I, right. I can speak from my own experience. I, you know, At this time, I have a 16-year-old son, a 13-year-old son, an 11-year-old daughter, a 10-year-old daughter and an 8-year-old daughter. And while they don't all have their own personal devices, my teenage sons do. And I have to say that the technology has deepened our relationships because we we can share articles. We can share funny videos with each other. Um, I get a sense of what their interests are mm-hmm. and what they're reading, what they're watching. And at another time, I don't think my 16-year-old son would have cut out 10 newspaper clippings and said, hey, mom, check these out. (laughs) They're really funny, you know? But now he can share that kind of content with me. So it's insight and talking points and conversation we can engage in. Once it's been shared on the screen, now it becomes a place place we can build a bridge and something we have in common to reference as, as we go through the teenage years. Or even silly things like the face swap app, you know, so you can put your face on someone else's face, which all of my kids are in love with this app and there's this silliness about it so really finding ways i mean i know families that build lego programming together or they're curious and they have access to information like never before so they can explore and get answers to questions together so there's absolutely unlimited ways that we can deepen and enhance the relationship as a family through the technology mm. it really it, it, again it's it's our it's our tool it doesn't have to be our master we have a, a couple more minutes what would you say uh, janelle as we're wrapping up what would you say you know is, is the one thing that I, I always call it the one thing that just might create the make the biggest difference for us, but the one thing that immediately something we could all start doing that would that would create a change, a positive change in our use of technology. Sure. sure. So I call this the, the slow tech philosophy. So slow tech doesn't mean no tech. It doesn't mean a slow connection to the technology, but it's thinking about how you want it in life. So maybe you can make a small change saying everybody, including the adults, are going to put their devices away before bed, or we're all going to sit down to a meal device-free. We're going to spend some time having conversation around the technology. So it doesn't mean that we need to get rid of it for a week, or it doesn't, but there's pockets where we can be fully present um, with our family, with our partners, with our friends and extended family, where we bring back some of the presence and some of the humanity to the space around the digital world. And that doesn't mean we don't have a deep love for the technology, but it means we have a deep respect for those relationships away from the screens as well. Huh. Wow. That's cool. I love that. I mean, that's pretty basic, isn't it? It's just <laughs> it <is>. basic. <laughs> that's, I guess all of this is basic, and yet uh, 
it's so hard for us to do and, and to, to make sure that the tech doesn't run us over. Well, we appreciate you. Janelle Burley Hoffman, uh, great great insight, really. And people can find out more about what you're doing by just going to your website, JanelleBurleyHoffman.com, or looking you up on Huffington Post as well. Is that right, Janelle? Absolutely. Awesome. Well, we appreciate you. Great work. And uh, everybody go also check out the book, I Rules, What Every Tech Healthy Family Needs to Know About Selfies, Sexting, Gaming, and Growing Up by Janelle Burley Hoffman. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, wrap up this second hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us, friends. We're helping you find the good in the world. And by golly, it might even be on your own device with your family. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's just technology. But I'm telling you, I have a feeling we are getting lulled to sleep. And we are sleeping through our own lives. The minute you have a free second, do you reach for your cell phone? Do you have to go check Facebook to see what your million friends are doing or have done? What is it doing to us? It's killing us. And again, it's just tech. I get it. It's just technology. However, this is still your life. And if you're going to spend the rest of your life just caught up in technology, what lesson are we sending our children? So before we sit there and try to fix our children's use of technology, make sure you take a really strong inventory of yourself. Are you addicted? If you lost your phone, would your life completely fall apart? Well, yeah. Who would I... Who would I like? Well, I don't know. But that's pretty pitiful. <laughs> because if you lost your phone, you're still you, right? Well, yeah, but I don't know my friends' names or their numbers. Well, that's weird. Maybe they're not your real friends then. Come on. Come on. Hey, uh, you know, tech is being used everywhere. If you, I don't know if you heard this story about uh, cops. Um North, Northeast Ohio police are hoping to figure out who left a bag of methamphetamine in a hotel, I guess. And they, they, they feel horrible. The police department feels horrible for the owner's loss and wants to help. The tongue-in-cheek message was posted Tuesday to the Macedonia Police Facebook page and asked the owners of the drugs to call or stop by to claim them so officers can, in their words, make your day. It's a trap! A photograph shows a baggie containing what detectives say is about a gram of high-grade crystal methamphetamine worth as much as 160 bucks. The detective at the department, about 20 miles southeast of Cleveland, says there were numerous empty bags in the hotel trash can. Police haven't identified who rented the room using a, uh, a gift card. Um, so if you're out there and you've lost $160 worth of high-grade crystal meth, about a gram's worth. Give them a call. Or give us a call. No, don't give us a call. <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't give us a call. Ben, give the Macedonia Police Department a call. They're worried. They're worried about you. See, you can use tech to help people who have lost things. It's that simple. By the way, I use tech to find my 
my iPad once when I dropped it off my car, actually. I left it on my hood of my car. Drove away. I, I've only heard of, like, women doing that with their purses. Okay. Well, you need to get out more. Ben. Because I'm not a woman, and it wasn't in a purse. It was on my roof of my car, and I drove away. And I called my son, and I'm like, have you seen my iPad? And he's like, no. And I said, it's missing. I lost it. And I was terrified. And he's like, well, Dad, have you looked it up? Have you, have you tried to the find my iPhone app and the find my iPad app? And I'm like, no, what are you talking about? And about a minute later, he had found my iPad. He said, Dad, I found your iPad. It's traveling south on I-15. <gasps> what? Anyway, we, te- we contacted the iPad, told him to call this number. We know where you are. And within about an hour, hour and a half, we had our iPad back. Pretty cool. Tech is good. Tech making me happy. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back next hour. One more hour, more fun, more tools to help you live longer and stronger. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. This is the program where we give you the latest and greatest, a leg up in life. You know, help you get on that horse so you can ride into the sunset. That's what we do. We get you on the horse. That was like five different idioms right yes. there. Thank you very much. We're here all day. And uh, in the program today, we're going to be talking about your need for sleep with Dr. Ron Hager, our health evangelist. He will help you not only live longer but and, and avoid death. Today, he's going to teach you how to get some sleep. And it couldn't be happening at a better time. Jeffrey, wake up, buddy. But Jeff, Jeffrey, Jeffrey, wake up, pal. Hey, pal. Oh, Hey. <clears throat> Hey, that's it, Jerry. Rub his forehead. There you go. Whoa. Okay. So um, now that we've got you awake, we it's perfect timing because this is the day – this is one of the only days I've heard Jeff complain about his sleep. Well, I've just realized – I've done the math and I believe I'm now below six hours asleep every night. Below six hours? Yeah. Do you know what is the problem? I used to use an app that would track my sleep. And when I track my sleep, I sleep more. And then really? I found out, yeah, then I found out that our phones may be giving us brain cancer. And in order to make my app work, you're supposed to like basically put it under your pillow. So now I'm like, I can't sleep on that or I'll get brain cancer. So do I want brain cancer or do I want sleep? So I've decided I just want sleep. So I'm going to start getting <laughs> brain cancer. I have to put my phone across the room because otherwise I'll turn off the alarm and not even realize it. Oh, really? You're that kind of sleeper? Yeah. Interesting. Wow. That says a lot. I, I've decided to – tonight I'm going to try putting my phone not in the room. So when I go to bed, I will have the phone out in the kitchen and I will wake up with an alarm clock. Have you guys heard of those? I use one every day. And it's an alarm clock and I will have to get up out of bed and go over and turn the alarm off. So this is, this is an alarm on your phone. No, no, no. It will be it will, it will be an alarm in the bedroom with a. It has a clock, and it's an alarm. And like the if you it, when it turns on, the radio will turn on. So I'm confused. It's not has nothing to do with the phone. It's an alarm clock. It's a clock radio. 
They were invented like in the 50s, 60s probably. So it, does it play like MP3s or? No, it could, I guess, if you have a nice one. Mine does. Yeah. Mine's, this one's just a little clock radio. But it's, the neat thing is it's also across the room where I can't see it. I can't see the time. So but, I have to squint with one eye. But then you can make a call and ask Siri yeah. for the weather and all no, that. See, this is the problem with being a millennial is you can't fathom this not being connected to your phone. But oh, oh the millennials are mad today. Ah, boy. Sorry, man. Sorry, sorry, millennials. Sorry. Anyway, we'll get to sleep talk. And um, if I'm not here on the show tomorrow, it's because I used an alarm clock radio to get me up. Just letting you know. Well, use I'm your let- phone as backup. Well, my phone's going to be in the kitchen. Because I go to bed and then I watch a show or no, I play games or set, I set it across the room so it's inconvenient to get out of bed. I take care of my city, my town. Just set it over there. Town so to if I didn't have, if I don't have a clock radio, like will a ham radio do the same thing? Yeah, try it. Try it. Okay, you can just get you know a, a honey baked. So if I'm not here tomorrow, it's because I used a ham radio yeah. to wake up. Yeah. I love ham radio. So we'll be talking with Ron Hager up next um, in just a few minutes. Also, of course, we'll be visiting our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation. Find out uh, what's coming up on the N- – I think the NFL draft. Is it today? And it's Thursday. Oh, it's Thursday. Thursday in prime time. Excellent. It's always a special now. You can't just no. have a show. But there's a game day. five tonight that there's you, game five that you continue to mm-hmm. refuse to acknowledge – I'm not. I'm I'm, not. I want to know when, like, at what point you'll acknowledge the Utah Jazz in the playoffs. Uh, like, how far do they have to jinx get? It. You're going to jinx it. How far do they have to get before you'll they get mention the, them? Well, the problem is they have to play the best team in the. Yeah, just NBA. they need to play well in the first round and get out because the next round they'll get swept and it'll be over. Oh. It'll be really depressing. Just have them play well. They played really well against the Warriors. I just don't. I don't want to jinx any of this, so I don't want to talk about it. So can we never talk about the Dodgers again? We'll talk Especially about the Dodgers. With, when no, they no, get... no. Don't talk with Joe Joe Cannon about them. Don't do it because you don't want to jinx it, right? Yeah, you Dodger fans. Don't even don't even say the word. You, L.A. You Evader fan. Evaders. <laughs> we'll get to all that fun ahead. I'm also, of course, a hero of the day. Great hero story coming up. Plus a little uh, other empty news. Dr. Pepper may be um, surprising a lucky college student with their own soda fountain. Mm. By the way, I'm, I've really weaned off of any carbonated beverage. I drink a lot of water today or a, water, a lot of water for the last about uh, 10 days. So thank you. Thank you, all, all six of you. Thank you. Now let's turn it over to Terry South um, and find out what's going on with the news around the country. Terry, what's up? What do we need to know? On Wednesday, President Trump will announce his plan to overhaul the tax code, including his proposal to cut the corporate tax rate from 35% to 15%. White House officials told uh, the Washington Post Monday, independent analysts have uh, estimated a cut this severe could cost the federal government $2.4 trillion over 10 years, and it's a deeper cut than the one the House Republicans have already proposed. Treasury Secretary Steve Munchen said Monday that the, such a tax plan will pay for itself with economic growth. But Edward uh, Killenbard, the former chief of staff for Congress uh, Joint Committee on Taxation, told the Post that if Trump's administration is going on the if they're going to rely on the principle that tax cuts can pay for themselves. History has demonstrated that tax policies move the growth needle a little bit. But it needs to be more than that if they're going to make up for $2.4 trillion 
in losses over 10 years. I mean, how hard could that be to find? I don't know. Maybe we don't fund a wall. But uh, says most companies do not pay the 35% rate anyways because of deductions, and these changes will have to be backed with by Congress and bipartisan support to pass. Yeah. So, again, is this that ploy that uh, Trump has talked about in his books where you you shoot with, you, you lead with the, the big ask and then back off, and that's your negotiating tactic? Yeah, I have a feeling that's what he's done. So he's going to back off to... I mean, fifteen percent is where it's at now, I guess, and so thirty. It'll go from thirty-five to fifteen, so he's going to get twenty-five, twenty-five percent, kind of in the middle, or is that still too much? It's still probably too much. Still too much. You can but only be so lucky. President Trump has summoned all one hundred senators to the White House uh, for Wednesday for a rare briefing on the topic of North Korea. Hear ye, hear ye! Absolutely. The meeting will be led by Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis, Director of National Intelligence Dan Cotus. And Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Joseph Dunford. Experts are increasingly worried by the speed of North Korea's technological advancements, with intelligence indicating the nation is able to produce a nuclear bomb every six or seven weeks. What, why would they go to the White House for that meeting? Well, that's what the senators are asking. They're like, we have those. So the White House asked Mitch McConnell, he's the leader in the Senate, and he accepted, puzzling some senators since they have their own building that they can all fit in comfortably, and there's really no place in the White House where you can put 100 people to have a meeting. And especially a secure meeting. Yeah. Some wondered if the, hmm. Washington Post, uh, the Washington Post wondered if the administration intends to use the moment as a photo op to bolster the 100-day mark that isn't important but is very important as they launch the President Trump's 100-day yeah, mark website sure. today. So you can go look at that and see his, all of his achievements. Oh, good. I is he going to be up. unveiling the statue after the first hundred days, the Trump chew. Yeah, the Trump chew. I I, th- I think they're going to wait till the second hundred days. Okay. Uh, other news: FCC Chairman Ajit Pai will kick off the process to scrap the Obama administration's net neutrality rules on Wednesday, according to four sources. This is uh, the latest move to relax regulation on the telecom industry. Pai will use a speech in Washington to repeat his opposition to the FCC's existing approach, which subjects the likes of AT and T, Comcast, and Verizon to old telephone utility rules to ensure that they aren't blocking or slowing down your web traffic. Hmm. So Verizon has a video app that is on all their devices. Okay. It's called like Go 20 or something. And it has video. It has all that kind of content. If they want to, they could slow down YouTube on their network to make it so that it doesn't work as well. And then it would make you use their video app. And choose their app because it works well. It works oh, better. Oh, them is fine, right? Words, though. So when you make that decision, so Verizon is basically making it so that you will choose their app over everything else. And that's – so net neutrality, That those rules were to make it so that they can't do that. Everything has to be seen as being equal yeah. across you know your access or what you access on your devices. Now the FCC is trying to roll those rules back so then people can – do it on the honor system. Yeah. Like, we're, we're not going to do that, even though it would be totally within their, their best interest for the business sure. to do that. So that's kind of the rules they're looking to to roll back. There's some uh, pushback. If you remember, the whole net neutrality push was rather chaotic, and people were angry as these were being uh, right. dis- discussed, and they were happy for the way the rules were made, and now they're rolling them back because business doesn't like that because they're constrained by more regulation, right? Yeah. So I don't know what the end of that will be. What, Someone will not be happy. <laughs> Finally, a Swedish hotel chain offers refunds to couples who divorce within a year of stay. Really? 
So a group, of, uh, a hotel group in Sweden thinks a stay at one of its hotels will help fix your marriage. If it doesn't, they will refund you all the money for that, that uh, weekend or whatever trip you spent at their hotel. Country- if you, so if you divorce, you can refund your trip. Your hotel trip. So countryside hotels will give money back to any couple who books a room and divorces within 12 months of their stay. Well, well that must be some hotel. Because, like, what if you're what if what if you're having marital problems because of communication issues, right? Or because you found out that they had been lying on their taxes? The director of marketing for the hotel group says the aim uh, is getting time for each other and investing in a relationship. It's very important, and we hope that we can convince more couples to invest in their relationships before it's too late. No. Oh. The refund is good for up to a two-night stay. According to a press release, couples who wish to take advantage of this offer must provide legal documents proving the divorce. So, okay. So we're going to try to go work on our marriage, go to a country stay hotel. And if it doesn't work and we end up getting divorced, we can send our receipts in <laughs> and our divorce decree and we'll get a refund. You get your money back. Wow. I mean, that's, I, mean it's, I guess it's, it's great marketing, I guess. <laughs> two-night stay. <laughs> Double they, occupancy. You know what they really ought to do are the marriage therapists. Maybe they ought to give them a refund. Probably. Hmm? Huh? Hmm. Money back guarantee. Isn't that what you offer? I do have I actually do have a money back guarantee. Hmm. But you gotta do what we teach, right? Oh. It's the hard part. There's always a catch. So always the catch is you just gotta do what <laughs> we teach. Yeah. Money back guarantee. Um Okay, let's let's go with that. Um, Dr. Pepper, another marketing little idea here. They surprised a Kansas woman with her very own outdoor soda fountain. Mm-hmm. All she had to do, she just shared a tweet expressing her love for the beverage. Kansas State University student Claire Daniels tweeted in December saying she wished she had a Dr. Pepper fountain installed in her house to save money on her favorite soft drink. So you're talking about the type of fountain that shoots outward and... <laughs> That type of fountain? Well, interesting. More of a water feature type fountain. But listen to what they did. Much to her surprise, the soda company arrived on her doorstep five months later to install a six-foot-tall maroon-colored Dr. Pepper fountain in her front yard, capable of holding five gallons of her favorite drink. Mmm. It's real crazy. Daniels told the Wichita Eagle, I'm still kind of in awe. It was just kind of a joke tweet. But here we are. I think it's awesome. I'm really excited. It's kind of crazy to think that one tweet could make this happen. Daniel said she drinks two or three cans of soda a day. And while she won't be able to drink from the decorative outdoor fountain, Dr. Pepper also provided her with 1,200 cans for her own drinking pleasure. You purposely saved this story until Ron Hager was sitting behind Uh you, weren't you? Yeah, Mm -hmm. totally. Because nobody loves a Dr. Pepper more than Dr. Ron Hager. The sugary kind, not the diet kind. And uh, no, so Ron's going to be teaching us how to be healthy. But I do want to send out a tweet about some of my other, some of my favorite things. Oh, okay. Like I, I love, I used to love Diet Coke. I don't drink, uh, I love um, Twinkies. (laughs) Sorry, Dr. Ron. And I love, um, I love nibs. Mm. (laughs) Nibs. The nibs. Twizzlers nibs or yeah. the ice cream nibs? Twizzlers nibs. Oh, but like I had, I had my level don't. of respect for you was but, up here. But you don't even know what kind of nibs I like. Hey, you just said Twizzlers, though. Oh boy, he's got an attitude today. He does. What do you like that you'd want to have them deliver to your house? Maybe twelve hundred of. 
Ooh, maybe like a double-double from In-N-Out Burger. Okay, well, may you rest in peace. How about you, Terry? What can we get for you? Milk duds. Ooh. That's good eating. They got to be fresh, though. Got to be fresh. I like mine stale. Said no one ever. Um, Okay, we will take a break. When we come back, Dr. Ron Hager will be joining us, our health evangelist. He's going to be talking about sleep. Are you getting enough sleep? Because if not, boy, oh boy, is your life going to fall apart. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, maybe it's the fairy tales we've grown up with, the stories of trolls, fairies, and grand adventures, but nature has always had a magical and sometimes foreboding pull to it. Intuitive wisdom says that mankind needs time in nature to reset, to heal, or contemplate, and these days the science is now backing up our intuition. Our guest today is Dr. David Strayer, Professor of Cognition and Neural Science at uh, the University of Utah. He joins us now live from Salt Lake City to talk about how taking time out in nature actually helps our brains. Dr. Strayer, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to have you. This is, um, to me, this it almost seems like a no-brainer, right? No pun intended. But the getting back to nature... And getting out into nature, it's good for our brain. It's good for our head. It's good for your body. It's good for your brain. It's good for your kind of your soul or your spirit. It really, honestly, uh, is rejuvenating in a lot of ways. Uh, our modern multitasking world with cell phones and digital screens all over the place places demands on uh, how our brain works. It tends to overtax the, the decision centers, the prefrontal cortex in our brain. And when you uh, uh, put that aside, set that digital technology aside, go out, take a walk, especially if you can go down to southern Utah with the the, uh, spectacular scenery down there, and go on a hike for a day or two. It's amazing. All of a sudden, we see bursts of creativity, and we're seeing changes in EEG when people are uh, have been out in the wilderness for a while. The are you accident. serious? So it's really the EEG, oh, and why, why is that? Is it just because we're not doing the same taxing activities, or is it because the, that nature does rejuvenate? Um, it's a little bit of rest, uh, rest and restoration, just in terms of kind of not constantly multitasking, but there seems to be something special about uh, being in natural environments. Uh, there's all kinds of research that shows that uh, being in natural environments uh, uh, improves healing, improves physical health, physical health improves mental well-being. Um, so Nature does have a special role in uh, what's kind of referred to kind of as attention restoration, restoring the parts of the brain that are responsible for, uh, uh, you know, attending to the modern world. Well, and we've it almost seems like we've done it completely wrong, right? We we import everybody from the suburbs into a big city where they then work and they get no, you know, they get no kind of nature uh, or natural, you know, relaxation, and then we stress them out for so long until they finally get a break once a month. Yeah, I mean, our our modern world. A lot of people uh, don't take time out in the day uh, to go on a walk, uh, to be out in in nature. It doesn't have to be some kind of exotic uh, place in southern Utah where there's nothing. You get benefits and 
we've shown benefits, as have others, uh, just walking in a park or an arboretum. So there are clear benefits of just being outdoors and getting physical exercise, which we know changes how the brain works. And also being in a natural setting, that works better than, say, just uh, exercising in the gym. Uh, You get the double benefits of being in nature and exercise. But our modern world, and people are driving for up to an hour uh, uh, each way um, on their commutes. They're on the phone constantly. They're on email regularly. Um, uh, and so our world, our, the modern world, is nothing but uh, just a series of interruptions. Um, and as a consequence, it wears us down. It mentally just uh, drags us down. You talk about what the phone does do to us. I know in your article you get into that. It seems like... Um, like having your phone, if I go on that walk in nature and my phone's with me, I'll still get a different result than if my phone's not with me. You know, we had intuited that. Uh, to be honest, I'd seen uh, uh, on my hikes down in the desert occasionally see people who were plugged into their phone uh, actually honestly selling uh, their stock or rebalancing their stock portfolio when they're walking through arches. And my thinking at the time was they aren't in this physical environment I'm at. They're walking around in the same space, but they could be any place else because they just aren't paying attention to being in nature. So we've tested that out uh, where we had actually people walking through uh, Red Butte Arboretum uh, up near the university campus. Either uh, they were walking and they had a cell phone uh, in their hand and were talking, or we took their cell phone away from them. And we saw a two-to-one difference in terms of the things that they, that their brain registered and that they were aware of uh, when they weren't talking in a cell phone. So you get that kind of phone zone, uh, um, you know, inattentional blindness, and it happens when you're walking in a park. So um, you can completely uh, undermine the benefits of going on a hike if you're t- constantly plugged in. Hmm. Is it... Would it does it matter if it's music um, versus just work? Like music in nature, what does that? It seems it might like it might be additive. Um, so what we know is that uh, um, in terms of the things that you have to do if you're talking on a cell phone or texting or you know looking at your social media, uh, that is much more of an active process, and that just really takes you away from being in the moment. Uh, music, if it's not uh, a heavy beat, uh, uh-huh. could actually uh, complement uh, your time in nature. But uh, uh, and we haven't specifically tested uh, if you know some kinds of music might actually be uh, be you know um, positive in that environment. But there's nothing really quite like just unplugging. A lot of people are amazed at the sound of silence. You yeah. go into the, uh, especially if you go down into the. Uh, uh, Red Rock country uh, and get a little bit away from the highways, all of a sudden you can you can hear the wind and you can hear all kinds of things and smell all kinds of things that you weren't able to notice before. It's it's like we're on uh, kind of some kind of stimulus overload uh, mm-hmm. in our modern environment with lots of lots of uh, noise that's constantly competing for attention. Horns, sirens, uh, you know, email phones, all those things are constantly placing demands on attention. And when you can unplug from all of that, uh, you get these really uh, striking bursts. And we see, for example, a 50% improvement in creativity scores when people have unplugged for three or four days. Are you serious? 50% in increasing creativity uh, just unplugging for a few days? Yep. that's that's uh, We, we uh, have published that a little bit ago. Um, that uh, That's exactly what we found, um, that... Uh, 
Um, the, the thinking basically is that uh, the part of the brain that's responsible for uh, a lot of multitasking is the, the frontal part of your brain. It's called the prefrontal cortex. But it's also responsible for higher-order thinking. And so if you're constantly multitasking, you're fatiguing that portion of the brain, depleting some of the glucose and glycogen storage in that part of the brain. And now if you have to do some problem-solving, you're just not going to be as creative because that part of the brain has been kind of tired out. Is this why you call uh, nature the antidote to modern life? I think it's certainly something that helps provide a balance. Um, you know, I mean, uh, everybody uses technology. I'm talking to you over a phone right now, right. and people are listening on the, over the radio. So there's clearly technology always in our lives. But uh, just like anything, too much of a good thing can be harmful. And uh, what we're seeing is more and more people who are plugged in all the time. Uh, you see people who may be uh, upwards of 10, 12 hours a day in front of some kind of a screen. That's a TV, some kind of computer, some kind of uh, cell phone or smartphone, um, and if they're taking that much time in front of a screen, they're simply just not outdoors, and they're not interacting with other people. So uh, our technology is changing the way we interact with the world and how we interact with each other. Oh, my heavens. This is uh, – it's so true and it's so interesting. We'll, um, let's take a break. We're, we're speaking again on this, on this very, I think, uh, appropriate subject of nature. Dr. David Strayer is joining us from the University of Utah and how nature is the reset button. It's the antidote maybe to, um, to all of these other demands we have for our attention, for our focus, for our brain to just keep multitasking. Stick with us, folks. We'll take a break, come back, continue this journey and uh, – Figure out some some key tools that you might uh, be able to use to make sure you're allowing nature in and uh, calming the brain down a bit. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're talking about nature and the uh, the very interesting research coming out of the University of Utah about the role that nature can play in helping your brain um, to to you know regenerate, kind of renew. It's uh, some work that's been done by Dr. David Strayer, professor of cognition and neuroscience at uh, the University of Utah. He also um, is uh, he's been on the show before when we were talking about all of these crazy cars that are going to be so tech driven and tech focused. Uh, Dr. David Strayer, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks. It's true about even the cars. You can't even commute without like having your car interrupt you twenty times with every drive. You know we're wired twenty four seven. It seems. I mean, so you really you're right that. Uh, uh, it's almost impossible to buy a car that doesn't have some kind of a uh, uh, some kind of a digital display um, and uh, you know wireless technology. So you can, you know, there's you're never uh, very far from uh, access to social media, um, and that just that multitasking clearly uh, in the context of driving is hazardous because uh, you're not paying attention to the other drivers or how well you're driving. Right. But in the context of your own kind of well-being in terms of thinking. Uh, you can just uh, overdo with constant access to digital media. I mean, totally. Like, how, how often do you need to check your Facebook page? Um, in reality, it's it's 
apparently wearing us down. All of the, you know, the text messages, the the Instagram messages. I mean, I can only imagine if somebody has all of their alerts on, their phone is going off constantly, and that you're saying that in the end takes a toll on the brain and the prefrontal cortex. So what we know is that uh, those little beeps and rings that uh, your phone does, just as an example, uh, triggers the dopaminergic reward parts of the brain, just like uh, almost like winning a little, uh, uh, you know, something out of the casino where you get this little burst of reward this, this, uh, because of the, the phone sent rang. Yeah. Why? Because it's part of your social network that's basically pinging you. And so it's become more and more difficult, especially for uh, teens, to not, uh, you know, look and see who's, who's, uh, who's you know, texted them. And you'll see, uh, I've seen a number of cases where kids will sleep with their phone under their pillow so that they can check it throughout the whole night whenever anything comes in. Oh, boy. So, so, and I'm assuming if the dopamine kind of centers of the brain keep popping off, then you're, get, you're also, I mean, your adrenal glands would be kicking in a lot. I mean, it seems like you would burn out. Yeah. I mean, another thing we know is that if you just look at a regular phone that hasn't have the blue light reduced, it triggers melatonin release, and so it disrupts the sleep cycle. Uh, there's all kinds of ways in which this technology, again, technology is great if used in the right and proper settings, but used indiscriminately, it'll make you so you can't sleep. It'll basically just constantly be taking you away from being in the moment. And there's actually something really powerful about, you know, being able to be in the moment and experiencing the full beauty of nature and, and or whatever else you're trying to do. Mm. So, so in the end... The tech has been good. It's great. It just it does take a toll on us mentally, physically, emotionally, and science is proving that. When we want to go rejuvenate it, you, you talk about a three-day effect. What do you mean by that? You know, it, it actually uh, – I've, I've noticed it in my, uh, in my own uh, wanderings in the desert, but uh, uh, really the three-day syndrome was something that uh, was coined by uh, uh, Ken Sanders and, and Edward Abbey uh, back quite some time ago, and they noticed that – they started thinking and behaving and, and just uh, noticing these qualitative differences in, uh, after two or three days uh, in nature. And that's why they kind of coined this three-day uh, syndrome or a three-day term where you've disconnected and unplugged from all the kind of uh, the rat race, really, uh, of modern society. And so we started testing that, and what we find actually is that that's where you find uh, these real sweet spots in terms of if people have unplugged for three or four days, these real big bursts of creativity, and that's where we're seeing some of the changes in, in, in brain activity when we record uh, uh, some, of, some of the EEG to look at uh, uh, changes in the different attentional uh, centers of the brain. So basically unplug for three days, and, and you will see a change in the brain. Oh, you know, the truth is, uh, you do not have to go out for three days. That's a wonderful luxury that I wish everyone could have. Yeah. But you know what? You get benefits even for uh, 20 minutes to a half an hour. Um, I liken this to the research on age and exercise. Uh, Forty years ago, people were saying, go out and go, go hike or walk because it's good for you. But, but there really wasn't much science behind it. Now we really understand how exercise is changing the physiology of the brain. Uh, and it really is one of these kind of ways of uh, forestalling any negative effects of, of, of aging just by moderate exercise. Um, and so that we're kind of looking at that same kind of thing in terms of being in natural environments. Um, you don't have to be out for long periods of time. If you can get out there, great. But every place that we have, there almost all of our cities have parks, uh, places you can go walk. Um, just go and go on those walks, and 
you know, try setting aside the cell phone for a little bit and just see what it's like to just walk and be in that experience. Mm. I mean, I used to do it. Uh, I do it when right after my show, I would go take about a 30, 40 minute walk. Um, and I noticed it does. It changes you. And then all of a sudden the weather changes and then you can't do it anymore. But you end up I end up being more sick. I end up being more lethargic. It's harder to make it through the day. Mm-hmm. But if I go exercise and exert myself, um, and I'm in nature, I'd always go walk by the river and uh, stuff here on campus, and I thought, holy cow, it does it does clear your head. Um, I guess in the end, we, we were creatures that that's how we would handle our stress. We would be stressed, but we'd also be in nature, so it probably helped us heal faster. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is that, you know, we're, uh, we're as a species, we're smart, and we can create this technology, and we can live with it. But if your refrigerator is beeping at you, and your microwave is, and your horn's honking, and your emails are coming in, and the, the, the list goes on and on and on and on, you're just nothing but a slave to that technology. And so, um, you know, I always think about this as just a way of trying to be smart with that technology and manage your life rather than having it manage your life. Yeah. Does it does it actually slow down your processing? What does it do? Does it just cause fatigue in the brain? What does actually happen when that it needs the rejuvenation? So we think on the shorter term, uh, constant uh, multitasking draws down some of the glucose and glycogen supplies that fuel the prefrontal cortex, and that's your decision-making centers of the brain. And so if they all of a sudden have to solve some difficult problem, you just don't have the reserves uh, to kind of act on that information. Your brain's kind of tired. Think about it almost like a a muscle that's been used for a little while. And uh, if you rest it, then you'll be able to kind of use that muscle again. There's probably longer-term effects. So we're actually seeing that, and we now understand about the neuroscience of of attention, that there are a number of different attentional networks that all work together for a healthy, uh, healthy cognition, and that uh, when you're in natural environments, you see the prefrontal cortex kind of quieting down a little bit, and there's another network that goes by the unglamorous name of the default, mo- default mode network that seems, seems to upregulate. Uh, and that's so, when you people meditate, you see the default mode become more active, mm. you see people mind-wandering, same kind of thing. And what we're seeing in uh, some of our EEG studies is that same thing. Being in a natural environment where you unplug from all the digital technology lets the prefrontal cortex rest and upregulates the default mode. Interesting. What, what do relationships do to our brain? I mean, it seems like if you're exhausted and tired of making decisions, you might end up pulling away from people. But is there a benefit to being around people? Oh, yeah, we're social, we're social creatures. I mean, that's actually another part that uh, uh, the late Cliff Nass was really studying is the way in which uh, not only does the constant multitasking uh, fatigue us uh, mentally and cognitively, but it actually kind of is a barrier between interpersonal uh, interactions. So you'll see people who may be at the same dinner table, and they're both texting each other. You know, <laughs> they could have actually just put the phone down and talked, but instead they'll actually send the text messages. The problem is that there's something lost in translation. And so when you have some kind of a digital media or a barrier, really, between social interactions, um, it actually, in the long run, uh, can have some negative impact. What uh, Cliff Nass from Stanford found was that it actually in- interferes with pro-social behavior. People become a little less social uh, and somewhat antisocial when they're constantly plugged in. Mm. Well, you, and you see it. You totally see it. And it's scary because it's these younger generations, in a way, that, that might be 
you know, totally adapting to all of the technology a lot faster. And I guess in the end, too, we don't we don't have 20, 30 years of research, do we, on the impact of this technology? We don't. To some extent, uh, what you what we're relying on is we look at a lot of the uh, uh, we we just see that uh, and, and as a professional, we're concerned when you start giving a three month old an iPad. Yeah. Um, and they have devices now that are marketed for kids that young. And we know that humans are a byproduct of the environment they're raised in. And so if you are plunking people in front of uh, digital technology at super early ages, they're not developing and they're not bonding with uh, other people. Um, we see that there's a, the digital media gets in the, is, a, is a barrier between a mother and child in terms of their, some of those bonding moments. If the mom is on the phone all the time checking or texting or updating social media or something like that and not interacting and making eye contact with the baby, uh, that has negative implications. Oh, yeah. Holy cow. We, yeah, we might be creating a bunch of monsters here, David. Well, we've built that. We've built this. Uh, you know, it's our own. Uh, it's our making. Our own making, right? right? Uh, we just need to figure out a way of doing it, using it in a smart way. It's a technology in many many cases. It's very. Um, if it's not addicting, and some people think it may be addicting, uh, it certainly uh, spawns compulsive use, where people are now turning to it instead of interacting with other people or interacting in natural environments. Um, it changes the way we remember. Uh, so you see this Google memory effect where people just don't remember things because they can just look it up. Mm. Oh, totally. Yeah, right. Why, why remember it? I just need to remember where to find it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, what would you say, just as we wrap it up, David, what, what's, maybe, what's something that I can focus on today, walk away with today as a listener, to improve my own cognitive health and well-being? You know, I just try and take a little bit of time every day to just go on a walk. Um, you know, just where you and, and, and a walk without plugged in and being on a phone. Uh, 20 minutes of just uh, or more, but if you can just even, you know, carve out 20 minutes of the day so you can just go out and be in natural environments, go to a park. If you get a chance, go farther down to south, southern Utah or up in the mountains and experience, uh, you know, all that nature has to happen. It has to offer its. Um, I mean, you know that all the major religions have nature as a key component. Right, so it's right. something as spiritual as well. And, and that, yeah, you can get your meditation in and get that default mode, I guess, kicking up. Mm-hmm. Interesting stuff. Well, we appreciate you. David Strayer, Ph.D. from the University of Utah Department of Psychology. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Keep up the great work. Oh, that's beautiful. I mean, really, nature, folks. It's God's little reboot. He gave every one of us a, a chance to just get out, get back there, and and let nature work on you and your brain. Powerful stuff, folks. Uh, hoping uh, that you're seeing the good in the world. And one of the good things is nature. If you'll let it into your life, you got to put your machines down, though, your screens down. We'll take a break, folks. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. When we come back, we'll be doing a little Coach's Corner. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. I don't know. What do you think, folks? It's hard. It's hard to get in, let alone get out back to nature. That's not an easy thing either. But when it comes right down to it, we all know we're just kind of floating, right? We're just 
We're, we're floating. We thought that we would have, you know, a lot of time to focus. With all this technology, it would buy us more time, right? More time to be with the people we love, more time to be attentive and in tune. And in reality, what ends up happening is not even close. We still don't have time. And so uh, I'm doing a big date night event in the next uh, – uh, on the, on this Saturday for Valentine's Day. And what I'm talking about is a simple idea of being in love, right? So when somebody thinks about being in love, they always think of the love part. Like the, the love is the, is the important part. You got to – as long as you have the love part, life is going to be great. But what I'm going to be focusing on in the date night is not the love part but the in part. You know, the in. You got to be in love. It's kind of like being in debt. It's not the debt. It's being in the debt that's the problem. When you're inundated in the debt, ugh, it's the problem. But if we could be inundated in the love, then life would be great. We're just overwhelmed and so full of love for each other. So when we talk about it, I'm going to get into four different things to make sure that we get in. And our nature really, uh, we've been told, is a great way to get in. And part of that is because it just automatically probably takes you to a whole different level of in vibration of life, I guess, because normally we're just kind of vibrating off of our screens and we're just feeling all of this intensity. In our marriages, in our relationships, four keys to get in the relationship. Number one, you got to tune into your partner. I've been married 25 years in a couple of days, and um, here's the deal. If I don't listen to my partner, if I don't pay attention to my partner, then I do not have a clue what her needs are, her wants are. You have got to learn, all of us have got to learn to tune in to what's really going on with our spouse. What are they really thinking? By the way, like you remember the old radio tuner where you had to tune in and dial in the radio? You might have to adjust it depending on where you were. But the minute you tuned in, it would eliminate a lot of the static. It would get rid of some of the interference. We've got to figure out and be present enough with our spouses to be able to tune into what they're really trying to say. And after 25 years, we should be really good at it, right? Well, only if you've been in. If you haven't been in, then you're not going to be great at being able to dial into what your partner's saying. Some solutions for that are very simply find ways to clarify what your partner is saying. Don't assume you know what they mean because they're saying certain words. Ask him, what do you mean by that? When you say that, I don't know, I'm worried about today. It's not going to go so well. Don't assume you know exactly what that means and don't just like answer it for them. What do you mean? What are you worried about? And let them explain more. Spend more time actually looking at your partner. You know, it's easier to tune into something that you're looking at, right? It might be easier to tune into somebody that you're listening to. So we can tune in with our eyes. We can tune in with our ears. We can tune in with our whole heart. We got to tune into our partner. Another rule, allow your partner in. One of the biggest complaints I hear from par- uh, in marriage uh, coaching and relationship coaching is, I don't even feel like I know my husband. He doesn't even let me into his world. She asks you how your day is. You're like, fine, my day's fine. No more need to discuss it. Do you let your spouse in? Do they share what's really in their heart and in their mind? Do they feel safe enough to share it? Because if they don't feel safe enough to share it, they're not going to share it. Are you a, a safe spouse or will you know you get laughed at? We've got to allow our partners into our fears, our beliefs, our concerns, and that means you've got to be able to hear it. 
there was some interesting research done of women that say they want to hear what's going on in their husband's heart, what they're thinking in their mind. And as soon as the husband shares it, almost inevitably, the wife's like, oh, I can't believe you're thinking that. You always think that. I know. My bad. If you want your partner to share more, you've got to be able to handle what they bring, and you've also got to be able to make it safe. Another rule is stay more involved in each other's lives. A complaint I hear all of the time is it doesn't seem like my partner's even into the family. They're not even paying attention. They're never involved, which means, Dad, you need to help more. Be there for homework. Help your kids do their assignments. Run the carpools more. Pick up the team. Drive the team. Be involved. Also, can I just suggest watch out for how we do our distribution of chores and of um, division of labor. You will make these divisions when you're young, maybe naive. The wife does everything on the inside of the house. The husband does everything on the outside of the house. Be careful, ladies, because there's because we have lighting and technology inside the house. You can end up working all night till midnight, but we can only mow the lawn till it's dusk. If you want a fair and equal division of labor, we're going to have to learn to talk about it. And then last but not least, you got to touch. you got to be in touch with each other. If you remember, that's where a lot of the chemicals started in the first place. So make sure you're touching. Uh, and you can touch, you know, in non-sexual ways. You can hold hands. You can hug. You can kiss in front of the kids and drive them crazy. That's the reason we're in love, right? Keep in touch. That's one of the goals. Stay involved. Allow your partner in and tune in to your partner. That's the way you stay in love. And that is the Coach's Corner.